You're listening to the weekly Parsha podcast recorded with Hashem's never-ending assistance in Ramat Shemesh Israel 5769-2009. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Amor. In the middle of this week's Parsha, so the Torah describes for us all the different holidays throughout the year. In chapter 23, verse 40, it tells us about a special mitzvah, a special commandment that we have to do on sukkahs. Besides for walking into the sukkah, that little hut that we build outside of our homes. So the Torah tells us as follows, verse 40, On the first day you should take, pre eats hadar, a beautiful fruit, it's referring to the esrog, kapos temarim, palm branches, vanaf eats avos, and branches of the myrtle tree, va'arvenochal, and willow branches, u'smachtem lefnei Hashem lokechem shivas yomim. And you should rejoice in front of Hashem your God for seven days. So now, there's a lot of questions to ask on this verse. There's a lot of questions to ask on the verse simply, and there's also a lot of questions to ask in regards to the halachas itself that we see that our sages tell us. So let's take a close look at this verse. Let's go a little bit backwards. At the end of the verse it says, You shall rejoice in front of Hashem your God for seven days. And it seems to be that the reason that we're rejoicing is because of this taking of the lulav bundle. So the first question is, why are we rejoicing because we take a lulav bundle? How does that make us happy? That's the first question. The second question is, at the end of the verse, it talks about seven days. At the beginning of the verse it says, you should take this on the first day. So which way is it? Is it one day or is it seven days? So our sages tell us that actually the lulav in the base of Mikdash in the temple, so they would actually take it for seven days. However, outside of the temple, outside of the Jerusalem area, so they would only take it one day, the first day. So the question becomes why? What's the understanding of it? Why only one day outside of the temple? Why seven days inside of the temple? Now, let's continue. Let's go through the mitzvah. Let's see what we do. We take one lulav, one long palm branch, and then we take three hadasim, three myrtle branches, then we take two aravas, two willow branches, and then we put it all together, and then that's in one hand, that's in our right hand, and then our left hand, we take the esrog. The esrog is a citron. We take all of these elements, we put them together, and we start shaking them in six directions, forward, right, back, left, up and down. What are we doing here? The Torah is not some made-up concoction of actions that we just happen to do because someone made it up in their minds. It's not the pshat, that's not the understanding. Every single thing that the Torah tells us to do, God has a specific intention for it. What is the lesson here? Why do we specifically take these three different elements, and the three different elements that are in our right hand are split up into six parts. One lulav, three myrtles, and two willow branches. That's in the right hand. That's six components. Then in our left hand we take the esro, the citron. What's the significance of that? And what's the significance that these things, the six items, are in our right hand? The esro is in our left hand. What's the significance of that? And why do we take all of these different elements, put them together, and then shake them in all the different directions? What does this teach us? So before we answer any of these questions, I'd like to share with you something that is so exciting to me that for the last week and a half, I have been able to think about nothing but what I'm about to tell you. And as you'll soon see, this idea that I'm going to share with you has the most incredible broad amount of applications. It's a simple, straightforward idea that once I tell it to you, a light bulb is going to shine on top of your head and you're going to say, wow, that explains so much. Now let's begin with the following scenario. You are a parent and you are trying to convince your child to eat dinner. Now, your child only likes to eat chocolate. That's all your child likes to eat. And you want your child to eat broccoli because you know that broccoli contains the necessary nutrition for your child. Now, your child will hear nothing of broccoli. Broccoli is disgusting. And you will hear nothing of chocolate because chocolate contains absolutely no nutrition. Now, at first glance, there are two possible approaches to this situation. The parent can say to their child, listen, 
this is what's good for you, and you're going to eat it whether you like it or not. Take the broccoli and stuff it down the throat of their kid. Okay? So that's called milchama, war. The other option is that the parent says, okay, listen, my kid's not going to listen to me anyway, and he loves chocolate, I might as well win favor with my kid. Here, have your chocolate. Now, I think everyone would agree that neither of these two options are the optimal choice. So let's try to find a third alternative, a better way. What's the better way? The better way is not my way, it's not your way. Like Stephen Covey says, it's a higher way. What's the higher way? How do we find the higher way? So I listen to you. I listen to my kid and I say, well, you really like chocolate, don't you? Yeah, yeah, Abba, I really like chocolate. I really want chocolate. Okay, well, listen, broccoli is very important because it's full of nutrition. And the kid says, really, Abba? Well, doesn't chocolate provide nutrition as well? And I say, no, really, chocolate doesn't really provide any nutrition, maybe just a little caffeine, but not any nutrition. So now we've each heard each other. Now, I've heard his side. He really wants something that tastes good. And he's heard my side because I want to give him nutrition. So now we can agree on something. It's called chocolate-covered broccoli. Now, if I would have come in with a dominant approach, so I wouldn't have been able to even open my mind to think about the possibility of giving in a little bit to what he wants. And if I would have been completely empathic, only giving in to what he wants, he also wouldn't have gotten any nutrition. So instead we found a common ground. By each person hearing the other person, as soon as the other party feels heard, the fences come down, openness exists to hear a third alternative, to hear another option, how can we work together to solve this problem? Now this is a cute scenario, but I will posit that every single interaction that we have with anyone else that is negative, it all boils down to the fact that someone or both parties do not feel that their emotions have been heard. Now I don't think that anything that I've said so far has been a great novelty, but now where I'm going to take this is going to be tremendously novel. Inside every single human being's mind, there are two parts to your mind. There's the emotional brain, which is located in the amygdala, which is the lower brain, the animal brain. And then there's the higher brain, the intellectual part of one's mind, which is located in the prefrontal cortex. Now there's an interplay that occurs between the two parts of our mind in every single situation that we encounter. We have the emotional immediate reaction, and we have the intellectual response. Now sometimes our emotions will get the better of us. We'll get so emotional, we could get so angry that we totally lose our mind, so to speak. Our intellect disappears other times, so we'll find that our intellect is literally battling with our emotions. And if we have a certain emotion, sometimes our intellect will say to that emotion, that emotion is ridiculous. How could you feel that way? And we stand there as observers, kind of looking at our thoughts and wondering, well, which, which thought is me? Am I my emotions? Am I my intellect? Where am I in this picture? Now, I want to tell you a story of something that happened to me on a number of different occasions, many times in my life. I would be sitting there learning, okay? Learning the Gemara, Talmud, 5 in the afternoon, and I knew that by 6 o'clock I had to be back at home. For whatever reason, I have to help out with the family, help out with the kids. I can usually come home at 6, 6.30, whatever it is. I know that there's a certain amount of Gemara that I have to finish, and it's 5 o'clock, so I begin to learn, and I have to finish a certain amount, you know, and it's not going well. My head's not into it, I'm kind of spacing out, not focusing well. 5.15, I say to myself, you know, come on, we could do a little better than this, let's get focused already. Okay. 5.30, I'm starting to get upset at myself. Come on. It's enough already. You've only gotten through a quarter of what you need to finish. It's getting ridiculous. Stop spacing out. I start to, to, you know, bang myself on the head. By 5.45, I've gotten so upset at myself that I literally want to run away, even though I've only finished maybe a small part of what I actually want to complete. By 6 o'clock, I finally say to myself, okay, listen, it's not happening. I've only gotten through, you know, two-fifths. Close the book. And I say to myself, I gave up. You're right. I couldn't do it. I couldn't handle it. After I've closed the book, I say to myself, okay, 
Let's try five more minutes. Let's see what happens. Open up the Gemara back again. All of a sudden, all of those negative feelings that I had for the last hour, they're gone. I'm able to learn for the next five minutes easily. And not only that, I was even able to convince myself to keep going till 6.30 and complete everything that needed to be finished. So I think to myself, great trick. All I have to do, anytime my Yitzhahara, my evil inclination pops up, all I have to do is tell myself, okay, I give up. So the next day, what happens? So at 5 o'clock, the same thing happens. Start to space out. 5.15, I say to myself, come on, get yourself together. 5.30, I'm getting down my own throat. So I say, okay, I give up. I close my Gemara. Try to learn again. It doesn't work. Worked yesterday. Why doesn't it work today? Don't know. 5.45, I'm killing myself. I want to run away. 6 o'clock, I finally close it. I say five more minutes. Piton, for some reason, suddenly at 6 o'clock, when I have to go home. So it works. It works. I'm able to finish the daf by 6.30. Couldn't understand it. What happened? What changed? What's the trick? I can't figure out the trick. So now, I want you to think for a moment about a relationship between a man and his wife. Man and his wife, you know, as much as we like to think that men and women were made for each other, they're not made for each other. In fact, the man, all he thinks about is intellect. He has his whole intellectual view of life. And the woman, generally speaking, she's more emotional. She th- sees things through the light of emotion. And when they get into an argument, he can't understand her. He's just trying to talk logic. And all she says is feelings. And she's just trying to talk feelings. And all he says is logic. So a smart husband knows, and a smart wife knows, that the first way to get at the other person's heart is by acknowledging their feelings. When the man, instead of trying to apply his intellect, beat the woman's regesh, her feelings, with intellect, if he first acknowledges her feelings, all of a sudden the defenses come down. Then she's open to his intellect if he really expressed her feelings properly. And then from the other side, when she wants to convince him of her view, so first she has to acknowledge his own feelings and to acknowledge his point of view. And then once he feels acknowledged, so then his defenses come down. And then they can work together to be able to find a solution that really works for both parties. Now, in a relationship, it's very easy to see this type of interaction. Now, where it becomes foggy, but I believe it is incredibly true, is that the same type of relationship exists within a person's own mind. There's the emotion inside of a person's mind, and there's the intellect inside of a person's mind. And they are battling. And the reason that they're battling is because each part of a person's mind doesn't feel heard. The lower part, the emotional part, that's the animal part of a human being. Certain advanced animals also have emotion. But what does a human being have above an animal? It's the intellect. It's the prefrontal cortex. It's the neshama, the soul, that's reflected therein. Now, so many times, we have an emotion, a feeling, and that creates certain thoughts inside of our minds. And those feelings are very strong, but many times they're off base, they're distorted. And we come at it with our intellect and we say to our emotions, come on, this is ridiculous. There's no reason that you should feel that way. And we take our intellect and we smash our emotions down. But all it does is create greater resistance inside of our minds. Because just like between a man and his wife, the wife is not open to what her husband has to say until she feels heard. Our emotions are not open to what our intellect says until our emotions feel heard. Neither part of our mind will work with the other part of our mind until each side feels heard. That's why when I was sitting there and I was banging my head with my emotions first, I was saying to my intellect, I was saying, it's pathetic, you cannot space in, just get out of here. Right, so what did my intellect respond? It responded and said, that's pathetic. Come on, just sit and stop being so emotional and then you'll be able to focus. And there was a war between the two parts of my mind. As soon as at 6 o'clock when I said to myself, I give up, I'm closing the Gemara. I gave in. What did I do? I acknowledged my feelings. I acknowledged my, my emotion that said that it feels too difficult. 
Now, I have to be careful here because even though sometimes we have emotions, we can acknowledge our emotions, our feelings, and other people's feelings without saying that intellectually they're correct. In any event, as soon as I had acknowledged those feelings, all of a sudden my regish, the emotional part of my mind, the animal part of my mind, was no longer in battle mode. There was no longer that tension between the two parts of my mind. Now they could work together. Now I could complete what I wanted to complete. And at 6.30, when I finished that daf, there was an emotional reward and an intellectual reward. I felt a sense of accomplishment. There was a feeling and emotion. And there was that accomplishment, which was intellectual. Now the key here to the relationship, the effective management of the two parts of our minds, the emotional and the intellectual, is the back and forth, is the give and take, is the understanding, the acknowledgement of the feelings that opens up the possibility for an interaction with the intellect. Now the power of this is when one starts to realize one's own feelings and acknowledge one's own feelings and only then respond with intellect. So what starts to happen is it becomes a habit. One starts to realize that you can also interact with other people that way. My child begins to get upset because something isn't exactly the way they want it. So I say to my child, you know, I understand how you feel. Do you feel upset about this certain thing that you're not getting your way? And the child says yes. And all of a sudden, instead of it erupting into a tantrum, the fact that the child is acknowledged now opens them up to being open to what the intellect has to say. And our first reaction is always to respond with intellect. But that's the mistake. Because the first reaction always has to be with acknowledgement of emotions and then with intellect. We approach our relationship with ourselves and others in this way, so it opens us up to a back and forth, the ability for me to hear the other person, for the other person to be able to hear me, the ability for me to hear my own emotions, for my emotions to be able to hear my intellect. Now let's come back to the esrog, because the esrog unbelievably reflects this entire concept to the T. The esrog, the citron, our sages tell us that it represents the concept of the heart. It represents the concept of bina, of emotion. They also tell us that it represents the concept of the womb, of the woman. And in which hand is it taken? It's taken in the left hand. The left hand is always the side of the female. Now what do we take in our right hand? We take the lulav. We take the three myrtle branches and the two willow branches. How many parts do we have there? We have a total of six. What's the significance of six? Six always represents the concept of the male. We see this clearly from the fact that the Torah says, There are six days that one is supposed to work. On the seventh day we're supposed to rest. So what's the concept of six? Six is the male concept of work, of action. In which hand are all of these things held in the right hand? The right hand always represents the side of the male, the side of the intellect. Now we take these six different parts in our right hand, all of that representing the male, and we take the left hand, we take the citron, the esrog, which represents the female, and we're putting them together. We're talking about relationships here. We're talking about a relationship between ourselves, inside of our own minds, between the intellect and the emotion. We're putting it together. It's the heart connecting to the brain. Then what do we do? We take it, we move it in six directions. Every time we move it out, and we bring it back into the center. So actually, there are seven directions, because it's always being brought back to the center. And the deeper sources explain that the center represents the concept of malchus, of the female. And the movement outwards in six directions represents the concept of the male. Every time we move it back and forth, what are we saying? Why are we going back and forth? What's this movement? The movement is, each time we need to understand that if we want to create a relationship between the center, the female concept, 
We want to bring together the lulav and the esrog. We want to bring together the male and female concept. We want to create a relationship inside of our own minds. With other people, there's a back and forth. We go to the male direction, we come back to the center of the female. We go to another male direction, we come back to the center the female. Each time, each time we go off in each direction, we come back to the center, there's a back and forth, a constant striving for understanding. This is not only true in regards to one's relationship with oneself and one's relationship with others. It's also true in regards to our relationship with God. There's a striving for us to understand God better. We try harder to understand Him. And he looks down and sees what level we're upon, and He draws us closer to Him. This is a process that we had gone through before Sukkot, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, we're saying to God, You are our King, we'll do whatever you say. On Yom Kippur, we say to God, Listen, we're pathetic. We have nothing. Just accept us as we are. We can't do anything better. This is what we are. We're so sorry. Forgive us. Help us to be better. We have this relationship that's created, that's forged with this back and forth. And on Sukkot, so the Shekhinah comes down. We go out into our Sukkot to greet the Shekhinah, to greet the Divine Presence. And when there's this back and forth, this relationship that's created through each side, hearing the other side, inside of one's own mind, with the people around oneself, and with God, there's no greater simcha. It's not a coincidence that in the verse that talks about the lulav, it talks about usmachtem, you shall be rejoicing. There's no greater rejoicing than when there's the balance between the emotion and the intellect. The balanced relationship between a man and a woman. The balanced relationship between a man and God. This is why the lulav, which represents the relationship, so the relationship is not complete until you're in the temple. You're at that point of connecting to God. That's why it was taken for seven days in the temple. But outside of the temple, it was only taken for one day. In any event, it all starts inside of one's mind, with one's relationship with oneself. Because you can't have a relationship with someone else. You can't talk about loving your neighbor as yourself until you love yourself. And you can't love yourself until you gain a balance between your emotion and your intellect. Once you have that, you can gain a balance between your own emotions and intellect and those of another. And once you have that balance between yourself and others, then we can talk about a relationship with God. I want to bless you and me and all of us, that we should all merit to have that relationship inside of ourselves have that relationship with others and have that relationship with God. Thank you so much for listening and have a great Shabbos.